Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange. We're running some in-person courses this year, super keen. So check it all out at tkx.org. And otherwise, from around the world, you can check out our self-paced online courses. Now, we are continuing on with episode three of our misinformation series. And who better than the no bullshit physio, I'm going to try my very best at pronouncing this. My, um, my family friend from Montreal will kill me if I get it wrong. Alexis Leveille. That's that- exactly it, actually. Yeah, that's pretty good. Fuck yeah. Well done. Awesome. Thank you. Um, routine. Yeah, yeah. People uh, mispronounce my surname <laughs> into the Red Zone <clears throat> podcast. I hate you. Um, but uh, we've got Alexis here. He has been posting some high-quality memes and has definitely lightened and brightened uh, my Instagram scrolling days uh, with his humor and also his very much direct, blunt um, and communication in a very unique way when it comes to irony, sarcasm, to to make some good points and show some science-based content out there, which we all need to see a lot more of on Instagram. So we're going to dive into misinformation, how we can handle it and here, more importantly, his story and how he got to where he is because... You are like a celebrity in my social circles, Alexis. So thanks for making the time for us across the world. Thank you for joining yeah. us. You're welcome. Uh, tell that to my mom. She doesn't even follow me. <laughs> She's like, I saw your picture. And I was like, that doesn't interest me at all. I was like, that's fair enough, mom. Classic. It's just not the right target market. Can we swap mums? Because my mom likes literally everything that I write. Even if it's just a random thanks comment, it's like one like. And I look. Oh, great. she'd love you because your pronunciation is really good. And mine, she keeps telling me mine's horrible. And you have a really slick accent. So she'd probably love you. Yeah. I'll ask her. We'll, we'll from, sort it out after. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mate, the infamous question that we ask all our guests is what is your story, Alexis? Uh, I'm a little Canadian boy. Um, I grew up playing soccer uh, and I played varsity and then I tried to get into medicine and I didn't get in because my grades were slightly too low. Um, so then I decided to go to physical therapy because I was like, it's kind of like medicine, but with sports. Uh, and then I did that uh, for really, I think one or two years. I didn't really like it. Uh, I thought it was a bit a strange program, kind of flaky. So I moved to law school because I've always liked arguing or so I thought. Um, And then I did a year there and I realized the lawyer life was not for me um, because people like arguing, but not for the right reasons, in my opinion. So they're just arguing, but they're not really. And it's because of the job description. They're not interested in truth that much. Some are, but most are not because your your goal is to be the other lawyer, right? That's to get your client out out of trouble. Whereas for me, the reason I argue is usually because I'm interested in truth. It's like a dialogue to get to the, you know, higher learning, you know? Uh, So I left law school and I went back to physio, uh, did my master's there at McGill. And uh, then I started working as a physio. I honestly didn't like it at first uh, because I worked at a mill clinic, which I thought was really like, no one cared about evidence-based practice, uh, in my opinion. And it was more about making money. Uh, and I thought that the treatment patterns were not advantageous to the patients. And I'm a big, big, like <laughs> believer in lost causes. So I've been told that like, a couple of times, but, um, so yeah, I decided that it was not worth it. So I just left, uh, and to work on my own. And in the meantime, I did, uh, like a certificate in screenwriting at UCAM, the university of Quebec in Montreal, a terrible school, but the program was interesting. <laughs> 
no offense, uh, Quebec. Uh, yeah, and now I'm just uh, posting on Instagram uh, content, working on my own. Um, yeah, to try to dispel a little bit of the information that's rampant online regarding fitness and physical therapy. Amazing, and quite a varied background that you have. And did you mention, was it screenwriting, did you say? Yeah, yeah, I did a year and a half of screenwriting. I got my certificate. I never, like I did a little bit of stuff here and there, but I never worked in it because the lifestyle is too flaky for me. So I'm a, I'm a big like short rewards guy. That's kind of the reasons I like Instagram. You do a post, you get instant rewards and like feedback. Whereas for screenwriting, you could be working on something for like 10 years. Like the guy who did, um, what's it called? Like Squid Whale, the whatever. You guys know what I'm talking about. The Korean show. Yeah, crazy It was really good, but like basically he worked for all his life and then he randomly got super rich. Like, but there's a bunch of them like him, uh, people like him who did that and they never got what they wanted. You know what I mean? So I prefer a short reward type of uh, job. So I try to mix it in the screenwriting into what I do as a physio on Instagram, but I don't do it uh, for work. I just work as a physio. Yeah, that's awesome. I've been super curious how you've uh, kind of found the screenwriting skills to translate into your social media work or your career as a PT. What have you learned or taken from that experience? Uh, I think the main thing is when I do sketches, the, I think the, there's a lot of comedy to be had in the framing. So, and um, just the comedic timing. So a lot of like, some people do videos and it's not that funny. Like a lot of like TikTok reels, I don't find funny because they're just like, what do you call it? When you do like karaoke with a, like they're just lip syncing another reel. And that's like half the comedy is the timing and like the awkwardness and the juxtaposition of two things that don't fit together. Um, So I think I got a little bit familiar with this and then the writing as well. So I know how to write sketches. And like when I do some with other people, I know how to make it clear, like, how to make it funny, even though I'm not there to do it. Cause with COVID you have to do it uh, distance. Um, so I said, that's the main thing, but I just know the basics. Like I, I'm not that great at it, but I say I'm better than the average physio <laughs> at yeah. screenwriting. Let's just put it that way. Yeah. It's awesome that um, it's a skill now that's super useful now with everyone having a page and a following and putting out content. If we can find out the structure for it, it'd be a lot yeah. easier to communicate that information. Um, and with law school, also curious, what have you taken from your studies or your time in law school? And you mentioned that the arguing was something that you were passionate about. Um, I mean, it's been useful for my life in general. So like, <laughs> I actually bought a, a house with my ex and I knew, I knew the law was like, if she put a single dollar in it, uh, she would have half the house to her name. So I actually wrote the contract so that it wasn't the case so that we were owners in proportion of what we bought. So technically, I, I, like I saved like hundreds of thousands. So right away, I know my law school year was useful. Um, but in general, for physio, the way, it, the way we write exams is how I think we should dispel information on, on social media. So it was a lot of like every sense that you give had to be supported by an article of law. So, you know, you put the civil code article, whatever, if you're making a statement, um, otherwise you're just going to get destroyed to shred in like a court, right? I didn't, never made it to court, but that's the way you have to answer in exams. And I think that's the way physio should be, uh, to be honest, because I think physio should teach you how to apply evidence and think like, like have clinical reasoning skills. Uh, was school, the way school was taught, there was a little bit of that, but I think the focus, especially at the end was more into like learning information and then repeating what the teacher's opinion was. 
to me, it's more like I could have students and they could, I could disagree with them, but as long as they have a good reasoning, I'm okay with it. Like I have people I follow and follow me and we disagree on a lot of things, but their evidence, their, their opinion is based on like some fact and some evidence. So I can respect that. What I don't like is people who make unsupported claims that, you know, because it's like you're, to me, it's misinformation, but it's not even based on anything. Um, so I think at least if people had this reflex of always supporting every claim that they make and realizing how much of what we say is just dogma and not supported, I think it would make the field as a whole much better because people would have to read because they'd be scared of, I don't know, it's still fear in people, but they just learned that you have to support what you're saying because what your words can have a very big impact on people's lives. You know, some people can hear something about, oh, this is dangerous and just never do it. And maybe that would have changed their lives, you know? Yeah, super interesting. I think uh, you mentioned the, the dangers and the harms and maybe it's the, the repercussions, the implications that our narratives, our clinical reasoning may have if it's not supported by evidence. I don't think, I don't know about your association and your experience in, in your profession, but there's not enough of the kind of auditing, I guess, if you'd like to call it, or, or just making sure that you're backing up what you're doing with some form of evidence, or that there's not that accountability, I feel, in, a, in the physical therapy and definitely the fitness worlds. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think it's a difficult problem because at one point you don't want to organize it. Cause like, I don't, I'm pretty sure if I talk to the heads of the physio organization, we have in Quebec, which to be honest is pretty strict if it comes to physio standard. I don't know how it is in Australia, but I know it's more strict than in the States or the rest of Canada, but they will look at your chart and be like, Hey, you can't say this. You can't say that. can't say that. Um, but it's very rare that they're going to go like, hey, this is outdated. You should not do that, except if it's extremely egregious. Um, but then when I talk to them, some of the things that they're promoting, I don't agree as being as it being like up to date. So I'd be uncomfortable being like they have to be more aggressive because I don't even agree with their judgment of what's up to date. Um, but I do think that there should be basically maybe someone I think a good in between solution would be to have someone who does like a top-down approach where there's someone that was like really at the top of the field vetting the, the courses, right. That are accredited. So the one that give you um, continuing education units, because now the ones that the order uh, I'm in, like the OPPQ is promoting. Sometimes I'm like, uh, this isn't like relevant or up to date. Like, look, I don't know. So I, I think that is part of the problem. Like there's too much, too many bad, uh, courses and there's a lot of physios who like the only work that they do is they just take weekend courses which i mean is better than nothing absolutely better than nothing but some of them are terrible and might actually make <laughs> like uh clinicians worse like all the um, you know like uh hook therapy is hook hook therapy, therapy? they just Man, yeah basically it, not big enough tell me please That's it's kind of like you know that fetish where you uh you hang people through ho like meat hooks yes they basically do that to patients and they say it's like, it probably has something to do with fascia, but like an osteo was asking me about it at the clinic. I was like, there's literally no reason to do this. <laughs> like, it's just, it's nonsense. It's pretty um, popular in France, I think. Wow. But they have like stuff like this. And it's like, I don't think you're going to be better from going to a course like this. Because obviously if your first thing you do when you see a patient is like putting meat hooks in them, your clinical reasoning is probably straying a little bit far from the you know, the CPGs, the clinical practice guidelines, because that's, that's not in the guidelines for low back pain, right? Put meats, meat hooks in your patients, but. It's such a multifaceted yeah. problem. And I, I'm laughing to myself because the same problems that you're having on the other side of the world, we have with some of the continuing education courses and the, the BS, more so than the narratives. I, I can, I can ha kind of have a, have a bit of kindness for things working for different reasons, but 
the way that they explain it, it's not based on any science at all. So it's like, oh, it's so disappointing to see. And, and also to see new grads kind of get sucked into the fads and sucked into the, uh, the finding the latest, greatest like gadget or fix or quick magic cure for any kind of pain just because it looks fancy and then it can yep. be very well marketed. So I think it's, it's very much a multifactorial issue. It's not just, you know, the auditing process for the professionals out there. Maybe it's also, like you mentioned, the education from the, from the start. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons people go with it is that it's just a way to protect one's ego. Like when I treat since a few years, my, my go-to is that whatever I'm doing is not working. I don't know if that, and then I think most people will assume that whatever they're doing is everything they're doing is working. <laughs> I think it should be the opposite. So whenever a patient takes me and they're like, Oh, wow, you like, you, you fixed me. I'm like, no, you did the work. I just guided you and made sure nothing bad happened. <laughs> like, I'm, you know, I'm just, in my opinion, my role is more to guide people and supervise with them getting better on their own. Kind of like, you know, how a doctor is like, Hey, this isn't a big deal. We'll just see, see you back in three months. If you still have pain, let's, they don't feel bad doing it. So I don't think we should feel bad doing it. Like something where like, Hey, we're going to teach you how to manage just the same way a doctor teaches a patient to manage diabetes on their own. Like they're not, they don't feel like shit because they're not curing people and yet they're charging like six times, whatever we, <laughs> we make. So um, I feel like it's, it makes people a better clinician to assume the, the null hypothesis in their practice. And it makes you less uh, vulnerable to adopting like ridiculous practices. Uh, yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Assume the null hypothesis. I'm going to steal that one. I just take it as, as well. Like I see it as a bit of humility. I feel it's a essential skill to have if we're, Kind of seeing ourselves as a, the coacher, like the coach, not the, not the fixer rather. Um, yeah. it, it can help to be like, Oh, I don't know why it worked. And having that ability to handle that uncertainty, I feel is not taught through our education system because we're taught to, you know, there's only one answer or we kind of know what our professor or what the markers or what the market criteria is to give the answer. But in reality, there may be more than one answer, but we're only given our degree if we have black or white answers in most cases yeah and i've had this discussion with a lot of people um and i think aaron i'm gonna post about this like this week like aaron kubel got uh, attacked by a cairo from canada because basically she, she said he was always bashing the profession and the, the where her argument was boiling down and that's the discussion i've had with another um a phd recently where he was um this whole thing is like that we need to specialize treatment and we need to subgroup and that like motor control works. But just if we do it in this very, very specific way, which to me makes no sense because it's probably just statistical noise. Because if you do a study enough times, you're going to find that it works in this very specific case. And that guy's take, and that's the valid take, his take is that it's like, oh, they just find the right dosage or the right way to do it. And for me, it's like, if you look at the stats, it doesn't, doesn't really make sense because most of motor control doesn't beat just like regular exercise. Anyways, what I'm saying is if when we got to the end of the discussion and the same thing happened to Aaron recently, the, the TikTok Cairo, was that the people, if you boil it down, they always go to this argument. They're like, well, what, how are we different from coaches if this isn't true? If we don't have this fancy thing that works? Well, it's like, to me, it doesn't matter. That's First of all, that's a bad argument. The argument is basically like, hey, this is inconvenient to my income, so it can't be true. It's like science doesn't give a shit if it's inconvenient for you or not. <laughs> And there's nothing wrong with being a coach. Like, what's the, what's, what are you saying? Is it, does it mean that coaches are pieces of caca? And it's like, no, they're just, they're valid people trying to help people just like you. Uh, and, you know, we're more than just fancy exercises. We're also good at clearing like red flags, providing feedback, having like a, some, some form of like psychologically informed 
a treatment, you know, we can do a lot of things. We can work in neuro, we can work in hospitals. There's not like a personal trainer at the bedside in acute neuro care. <laughs> so yeah, again, I think a lot of, of it boils down the, the way, the reason why a lot of physios don't, and chiros and personal trainers sometimes don't like being evidence-based is because it's very uh, hard for the ego because it takes a lot of humility, ironically. Yes. So interesting that, and that comment always comes up in various topics, like you're just bashing the profession or like, why don't you just post something that's, that's helpful for once instead of, you know, I, I'm sure you get it all the time. Um, all the time. Yeah. I can see, like, I, I love the, um, you've heard of the steel manning kind of looking at it from the, yeah, like, I, like things are, are, you're helping people. It's just for different reasons. And that, I stole that from Anthony Lowe, the physio detective. I think that's a good way to start like having it. some conversations because to be fair it can from if, if we wanted to create some camps it can appear a little bit arrogant i know i have made the mistake of being a bit too much on that side but i'm keen to hear your experience on how we can kind of have that conversation with someone when or how can we respond to that because it's such a common thing like you're, you're just and adam meekins gets it all the time you're bashing physios or you're you're dissing our kind of our our identity our ego yeah um, yeah, usually to me, the, my go-to is like, why are you arguing against, but why are you critiquing the person calling out misinformation and not the one spreading it? I think that says a lot about it. people who do that. It's like, um, and also I think calling out bad information is also information. You know, it's like uh, the, the way I phrased it recently was like uh, saying that it's bad. It's like unprofessional to call out misinformation is like calling a, a cop a hater. Cause he's stopping crying. That doesn't make sense. and also the the problem is that you can't teach someone's like you know if two truths are not like they can't fit together you have to get rid of the other one like the the old outdated form of information before putting your information and misinformation just spreads faster in social media so you have to address it and also um if something contradicts people's beliefs they're not gonna they're usually not going to go for what you're teaching if you don't validate their experience first. So I think one way I was doing it before was telling people that were stupid for believing something. I try not to do that uh, anymore and more like be like, Hey, this is why we believe this. And now this is why we change our minds. I think that's more powerful because, because even like me, like as I used to believe a lot of things that were false, I was taught a lot of things that were false. And I think in my learning process, explaining the reason I went through to change my mind is much more useful than just bashing other beliefs. So I think there is a way to do it, but also just people calling out like uh, you being unprofessional because you're calling out misinformation is just nonsense. Yeah, it's just that. like two things. Yeah, absolutely. There's a misconception that I love the way you put it. If, if we call that misinformation, that is information in itself. It'd be like if we're going through a, a forest, it'd be nice to know where all the kind of dangerous animals are or like where not to go through Exactly. Yeah. To get to the other side. Um, I think I saw that one from, from Lars Evermarie. Um, so absolutely. I, I love this. And we could probably go on this train of thought for a while, but I wanted to quickly pivot uh, in terms of your, um, your kind of um, clinical progression. Cause you mentioned in a few podcasts, I've been stalking recently that you were keen on a PhD. So in terms yeah. of where you're heading. Yes. I should went wild. Yeah, it's actually why I went on vacation. It's just because I, I was feeling swarmed with all the projects I have. So I wanted to take some time to maybe start applications. 
Um, I've talked about this before. I don't want to go into too much details. Yeah, of course, science, like last time, I don't want to. I want my 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 thesis to get stolen. But um, of course, it would basically be trying to solve the flagship debate on low back pain because um, there's like a gap in the literature. We don't know if like fully loaded Jefferson curls are good or the back is going to adapt to it. So I just like to see if we can. Um, and I think if we do the, it will kind of finally settle the debate because the debate of whether flexion is fine, like some flexion during the deadlift is, I think has conclusively been shown to be safe. The people argue that it's not like squat you or people like that. Just they probably haven't actually read the studies they re reference. It's like mostly Stuart McGill's work, which is, it's extremely like one of the most confusing things I've ever had to experience was reading Stuart McGill's stuff like from like top to bottom and then realizing that most of his studies like if you look at the results the conclusion should be exactly the opposite so whatever um so yeah I'm just trying to see like settle this thing because it's really annoying and I think it creates a lot of fear in people um yeah um yeah so that's it that's about my PhD amazing amazing I'm, I'm super excited to see where that takes you um and in terms of our in terms of the research side of things, uh, one of the things that I really value about your post, as you mentioned before, is that you use citations, you refer to studies, you really look at unpacking the claims and not just looking at, you know, abstracts or titles. Um, so in terms of papers, the most memorable, your favourite research papers out there, I gave you five, but you can list as many yeah. or as little as you want. Super keen yeah, to, so to hear, like the most memorable ones. Yeah, sure. Five. Um, there might be just group papers. The, the first one is just a bunch of studies. Um, Lars Anderson is a researcher I respect a lot because he has a lot of like very applicable uh, research. So it's that's about mostly like micro exercise, mostly shoulders for some reason, or just micro exercise in general. And by micro exercise, usually the definition he uses is like um, like thirty minutes of exercise a week minimum so usually office base that you can do without having to change your clothes because you're not going to sweat too much uh usually the format he uses is either like five times a, a five minutes a day three times ten minutes a week or like one session of one hour and usually like three times ten or five minutes a day show the same results which are pretty good uh he started in like 2010 and he's still going um he recently did a study in 2022 like a few weeks ago um on 70,000 uh danish office workers and he showed that just we're doing the again just micro exercise that was office based so like you can use like terabands and just do like lateral raises or like front raises just for five minutes and or three times 10 minutes a, a week and you would get like a decrease in the long-term sick absence of 80.5 percent and it's really easy like if you look at like implementing exercise the micro exercise was way more efficient. So there was actually like a big change in Denmark. I think there was like an increase in like 15% of the, how often people were doing micro exercise in the office, just from it. I don't know if it's only from its work. It's probably just a culture shift, but basically it's way more effective than trying to implement exercise overall. Right. Um, and what I like about his work is that a lot of my patients struggle to do like a full program of exercise, but we can show that like even a small dose is good. And I think the small dose is like a good intro. Right. So you do the intro and you like it, you feel better. You, you're going to do more probably. Whereas if you go like, Hey, you need to do three times an hour every week. A lot of people are just going to fall off the bus right away. So uh, again, the way I treat usually is trying to make the smallest possible change. That way I make sure that it's going to be applied or I increase my chances that it's going to be applied. 
and that it's going to be sustained long-term. So I think Lars Anderson's work is really applicable there. He also has like fun stuff. Um, his work is also a lot of stuff about, it's on office workers, right? So it's a lot about neck pain. And he showed that like shoulder exercises are really efficient for, for neck pain, for prevention and for reduction of active pain. So I use shoulder exercises a lot with people. Uh, neck exercises are boring and weird. So I often just start with shoulder exercises for people with neck pain. So I think that's a good way. It just gives you an, another option in your toolbox. Uh, next work is like by Wendy Hurd. So like my number two, uh, she did a lot with um, Snyder Mackler, I think is her name um, on ACL. So she's the one who started the research on copers versus non-copers. I don't know if you're familiar. Yeah. Okay. So um, uh, basically she shows, she found like a, the Delaware, um criteria which are basically like a set of criteria that you can you can use to see if someone might benefit from not getting the surgery and she showed that they were 72 percent effective so basically people who fit in these very simple criteria so i think it was like um no giving way episode during activities of daily living since the the acl rupture 80 percent on the coups adls uh outcome scale 60 percent of global rating and then um i think the other one was like oh yeah it was like 80 percent left to right uh, on the hop, four sets of hop tests. Um, if you got that, basically there was a high chance that you would get benefit and be able to avoid uh, ACL reconstruction. So it was pretty groundbreaking work at the time. I think she started in like 2009 with the, the first paper I read from her, but she has some going back further. And then 2020, she did a reassessment and she showed that they were doing significantly better. The people were non-copers. And what's interesting with that is that it's not like, hey, <laughs> if you're better, you're going to be better. It's more that there's also papers that show that you can bring a non-coper, so someone who's not fitting into those neat criteria, and bring them to be a coper over the course of two to three months. And there's other data showing that um, if you delay ACL surgery, so the, the Canon trials show that it's not going to make the people worse. You're not going to create more damage from just waiting a little bit. So again, the, what that says to me is that we there's a strong case for trying uh, non-operative ACL um, treatment. Not everyone's going to be able to do it. And it's fine if they can't, but if they can, there's a high chance they're going to be better, especially since, you know, the work by Phil Bay in 2022 recently showed that a lot of like 56% of people regrew their ACLs without intervention. So again, just like something to try and to be mindful of, and you don't have to be scared of surgery. It's just, again, if you can avoid it, it might be a benefit. Uh, yeah. And then that the was recent. Uh, the, I like the Erickson Cromer 2015 papers. It's about muscle stiffness. So if you uh, do a massage to someone, the stiffness is going to be changed temporarily. But if you leave the person on the table for three minutes and then you just reassess the stiffness with, uh, I think it was shear wave elastography. So it's a very objective way to measure stiffness. The stiffness just comes back to its resting uh, stiffness. So basically what it means is that you don't have to press hard when you're doing massage or manual therapy because you're not going to affect stiffness. If you're looking for it, you might just hurt the patient without providing any long-term benefits. So it probably just go like make the patient feel better. Don't focus on a, a trigger point or anything you're trying to release or make the muscles softer. Cause that's probably like a, a fool's quest. Um, so I think that's the paper just really is a good paper because it shows why people like massage therapists or physical therapists might, might be like, Hey, I feel it getting softer. It's like, yes, but it doesn't last. So I think it's powerful because it has like the built in validation of people's experiences and then explaining why it, we might be better doing it off, doing it differently. Right. Um, another big paper was the Bandak paper from 2022. I don't know if you're, you're familiar. It's the one on um, 
placebo injections, so saline injection for knee OA compared to that were time matched to exercise. Um, so it was the first one where they matched the, so basically like the, the physicians that were giving the injections were staying with the patients to answer their queries and whatever, the same amount of time that people were doing exercise and they didn't find any difference between the two groups. It was mirrored by like an earlier study, I think in 2021, like the START trial. They found the same results. I think they compared exercise to just matching, uh, I think it was like support group exercises or bingo. I don't remember, but it was like basically socializing older people and comparing that to exercise. And again, it was time match. So people were giving as much attention in both groups, but in one group they did exercise and the other did some other stuff. Um, my conclusion with that is not that exercise doesn't work for osteoarthritis. It's just that it's an option. And I tend way more to just recommend group exercise now or group activities. So if my first, the first fruit I pick out when some, like a patient comes up, especially if they're an older patient, because they tend to be very isolated, especially in Quebec, is to see how their social circle is and try to get them active with someone, first of all, because it's going to increase the likelihood that they're, they're going to remain active because they have to walk to the activity. They can do sports with the other person. Uh, but also because like if they hate exercise, maybe you don't need to do exercise specifically for them. Maybe just doing like bingo with a group of friends is going to be useful too. It might not be as effective of exercise. I don't know. But again, just trying to fix, like seeing the person as a whole and making them happier is probably going to help their knee as much as you trying to fit them into like, do exercise, do it this way, do strengthening. Um, so yeah, just more flexibility and probably like going to make physio more um, pleasant for the patient. Yeah, I think that was, those were my five. Awesome. That's awesome. But um, when I saw the saline injections uh, study, I, my ego was like so threatened. I was like, shit, you're saying exercise is, is bad. So it's interesting, like the backfire effect we can all experience when going across research. Have you had similar experiences with looking at some research that makes you kind of uh, question and maybe change your approach? You, you just mentioned one example just then. And it's amazing to hear how easily and how quickly you were able to to shift and modify your approach as soon as you saw the evidence for it. Uh, actually, no, the Bandak paper was one. <laughs> I had the yeah. same experience as you. Mm -hmm. It was terrible. I was discussing it with uh, Jacob Templar and um, actually like, I had like a bit of a fight with Aaron Kubok. It was, it was like, you should read more research. And I was really insulted. I had a bit of an um, ego uh, like uh, attack basically because it was like, ah, because I was aware of the Cochrane um, systematic review showing the exercise work, but it's true that if you look at the studies, a lot of them are not uh, placebo controlled. So they're like a no intervention control. There are some that are placebo controlled, but mostly they're not, um, or they're old studies. Um, so yeah, it was a bit, that one was the last time I was like, oh, that's that sucks for, <laughs> that sucks for me. Uh, but I got over it. And again, I, I think it just makes sense to me because isolation of old people is a huge problem in Canada, especially since COVID. So for me, I feel like it's almost like an easier uh, apple to pick because like old people, like they hate being isolated. Like they're living, they're, you know, they're getting older and they see time pass and they, it sucks to be isolated. Um, so if you find a way to get them um on board it's probably going to be easier to get them to get them to exercise and you know as well as me that's really hard um especially since like a lot of people who do who have osteoarthritis are people who have been sedentary right because it's a risk factor for developing it um so yeah i think it was easy when i found a way to kind of like make it eat more palatable being like hey this is actually going to make your practice easier but it was really frustrating at first yeah yeah i can see where uh 
we can reflect on some all the patients and clients that we've seen and maybe if we can just ask that question of like who do you have for support around you and reflecting on our own experiences with all the patients in the other side of the world it's very much a very similar situation and, and COVID has increased isolation which social isolation is a risk factor for so many other things as well as the sedentary stuff so yeah and I want to move on to how can we respond to misinformation um, when we see it, when we come across it, and we can go in person and maybe there might be some slight nuances and different approaches depending on the person that you're talking to um, versus how can we respond as maybe a, a role model online to when we come across information because um, I, I highly value work because I can imagine the amount of energy and time and effort that you put into debunking and unpacking some of the research and some research that you're like probably wouldn't have bothered reading because they don't really seem too biologically plausible in the first place but you you make that effort to kind of really get to understand where someone's coming from um so this is all you know brandolini's law the amount of energy needed to refute bullshit is an order of magnitude larger than to produce it and another common quote is a lie can travel halfway around the world before the truth can get its boots on. So the amount of effort that you put is amazing, but how can we, and advice you'd give to clinicians when we come across misinformation online or in person, how can we respond? I was running low, by the way, I'm at 10%, but that's fine. Um, the, part two after, three, four, yeah, sure. six. Um, yeah, so it depends if you're like a um, if you're like a, a layperson or a clinician. For clinicians, I think the best way online is to ask. Like, um, I asked like for someone's best study on it. I don't know where that's from, but basically, because it's first of all, it's not going to take much energy from them, because that should be where their information is from. If they can't provide one, Hitchens Razor is based on nothing, right? If they get offended, same thing. Like it's not based on evidence, and the fact that they just get triggered from you asking means that it's probably not a very valid belief, in my opinion. Um, uh, after that, if they do provide it, it's great because you can just look at it. And if it's a terrible study, well, you got your answer. If, especially if you have like a backdrop of knowledge that you know have better studies and you can engage the discussion. Sometimes they send you a really good study and you change your mind and you just learn something. So that's great. So you give them the give them the benefit of the doubt. And again, very quickly, most of the accounts I ask, they don't answer. And that's when they get memed. There's some that answer and I'm I'm fine with it. Like I think I, I often use like Andrew Locke as an example. Like he's someone I like disagree with, but he does read research and he does we do discuss research sometimes. So I'm not much less likely to the meme anymore <laughs> i did it at the beginning quite a bit um yeah so that I, I feel like that's the easiest way if you're in person i think um the in french we call it like the maiotics um like socrates's method so basically where you ask questions to people to kind of see where their beliefs are coming from it's like if someone makes a claim you're like hey okay so like but like you basically it's kind of like sneaky but you ask questions so that they contradict themselves and then you see how they react because that way you can like in person you can't engage in conflict right online you can tell a person he's, a, he's an idiot and a moron and nothing happens uh in person if especially if it's a coworker, that's a bit um problematic so you can ask questions and that way if he gets mad you just you were just asking questions right you got plausible deniability um and if you just sometimes people realize like hey maybe it's not based on as much science or as much reasoning as i i would like 
Uh, maybe he's going to learn something or maybe you're going to learn something. But basically, yeah, you, you ask questions. Um, or one I like, because a lot of students ask me this, is you ask your supervisor to explain a big paper that contradicts what you're saying. You're like, hey, can you explain this paper to me? Because maybe they have a really good question for this regarding that paper. Maybe they've never read it, but you can tell a lot by the reaction. So some people will be like, hey, you know what? Maybe I need to change my mind. And they'll, you have a learning moment for both the student and the, the clinician. Or they don't react and you're like, well, maybe I shouldn't bother trying because this person, even with presenting with contradictory evidence, is not going to budge. You know, and that's, you, then you just keep your head down and finish the, the clinical placement. I think that's a good way. Uh, I mean, it's not perfect at all but I think it's the most diplomatic and easiest way. Uh, you can do it online too. Like Ben Cormack does it, like he came in my comments recently. That's how he does it. And I, I learned something from him. He was basically asking me what my opinion on like the p-value or whatever it was. I kind of learned that the way I was doing it wasn't necessarily wrong. It was just a different interpretation. So now I've, I know two interpretations. So um, yeah, asking questions is great. And then again, asking for the best study, I think would be my two things. Yeah, awesome. Um, quickly, are you able to charge the phone? uh oh it's, it's just i have my mic plugged in so i might just i'm at, I'm at the lowest luminosity so i i think we're good for another like 15 minutes i'll just Easy. cool just mindful of yeah. your time and your phone's life um yeah love that the a few things like the hitchens razor uh if if something doesn't have evidence it can also be just easily dismissed i feel even that there can be barriers to that especially if someone's practiced in a certain way and sees results and ties their identity to that intervention um that can be a bit to unpack, but your approach of asking questions and um, seeing how they respond and the judging by that response, uh, if it's like very emotionally fueled, maybe it's not really the context for that discussion and it might not be worth your time to pursue it further. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really easy. Um, and if we just find out the methods that people use to come to their conclusions, I think that can kind of go around the ego questions just questioning the how they got to their conclusion or what they used rather than them or the intervention or their their profession um yeah just asking questions um and in terms of like plausible deniability is that in terms of like them so they can kind of deny having responsibility just to expand on that point Oh, no, it's just, a, you know, it can get political at work. So if you are arguing with sure. people openly and you're saying, like, I'm right, you're wrong, that could be tricky. Uh, and also it's that you sometimes you don't know. Like, sometimes you realize, hey, I was wrong. So you're better off having that plausible deniability and being like, hey, I was just asking a question and trying to learn because I think that's how you should see. Um, we should not see it as debate. Like, I mean, if it's an odd, like I've been invited to a debate recently, that's going to be a debate. But if it's a dialogue, like if you're having like a mutual conversation, you're just trying to get a further understanding. So um, starting thinking that the other person might have a good reason to believe what they believe is, I think is a healthier way and less inflammatory. So you're both board changed, but, but uh, both a better chance of like learning out of it. than if you go right away being like, hey, guns blazing, I'm right. Yeah, yeah. And that shows... It role models that humility that everyone in general, both yourself and the other person, whoever's in that discussion needs to have in order to change their mind. Like I'm willing to, to change my mind right now. If just, just tell me, like teach yep. me, like let me help me understand where you're coming from. Oh, I have another one. Um, actually it's this one. It was a Jared Powell, the shoulder physio who taught me this one. Uh, you ask them what piece of information would change your mind. Mm. That way they can't shift the goalposts after you've provided it. And also, you know what to look for. And sometimes you're just giving argument and they're like, um, 
<laughs> like their argument is something that's not possible. Then you're like, well, I'm not going to engage because we're both going to waste our time. Um, like they're like, I wouldn't need my my dead father to come back because he really believed in shoulder impingement. I was like, well, I can't do that, so I'm not going to bother. But if they're like, hey, I need a double blind RCT with a sample size of like 50, you're like, okay, I'll find one if there is one, and then we can both come to our conclusion. You know what I mean? Yes. So uh, you and, make and people accountable. Falsified in the first place. Like, voila, yeah. <laughs> if it can't be falsified, that's pretty fucking hard to to change someone's mind. Um, yeah, love that. And in terms of your social media work, when it comes to like algorithms and when it comes to marketing, promoting, it's kind of science-based information. You're doing a fantastic job and you've, uh, I'm sure you've got some insights for, for us clinicians. How can we kind of, uh, you know, acknowledge the algorithms and people love controversy. How can we use that to our advantage to promote more of maybe things that are less wrong? Um. I think having like a, a specific voice is kind of important. So like if people know you, like if they feel like they know you, because I mean, and like engage one way is to like literally actually know your followers, like engaging with them. Like I try to answer every person almost. Um, I think that helps a lot because like I have the rapport with them. Um, I think it, it helps because again, these people are more likely to comment and it's just more fun to you because you know who you're helping. And yeah, so I think that's, that's useful. And that like, for me, for example, like my, my identity, my niche is just um, a frustrated physio who um, calls out misinformation. So it's pretty easy. Like people understand it. It's in my name, like no bullshit physio. So having like a very specific identity instead of being this ominous, uh, personless um, platform, I think is useful because there's not a lot of like big pages that are just random accounts, right? Um, like physiogram might be the biggest like voiceless account i think and all they do is like repost um, i've nothing against them i'm just saying it's rare that a platform is going to grow that large being uh something with no personality right um so i think that's good because again uh, for some reason the human brain is connects with people it doesn't connect with corporations or there were no corporations in caves so i think there's probably something there whereas there were humans right um so yeah having a unique voice um also like again having um accounts that you can connect with before so before i started posting seriously i had i was like i was in contact with a lot of like big pages that i knew like um and they gave me reshares because i mean provided you have good information if people know you they're way more likely to relaunch like i was asked by people like a skeptical physio and then the physio formula formula sorry and then a jacob teplar they're all people that were like almost like asked me to start a page i mean Skeptical Physio literally asked me to start a page, so I did. Um, and then when I started my thing, because I think it was good information, I got reshare. So having good info, but then having like a groundwork done on like the marketing almost, like having your connections is useful. So again, engaging with big accounts that you want to, you aspire to be like, I think is really useful because um, then you have a rapport and you're more likely to reshare. Uh, but then again, your information has to be good. So my go-to for that is you have the... Uh, citations listed sometimes people and that's just a me thing sometimes people list it at the end i don't like that because it's easier to falsify like brooke bush does that he has like 120 citations at the end and you're just supposed to assume that it's good or where the information comes from so whenever i make a claim again it goes back to the law school thing i i have the reference right after because i think it's it's easier for people to check fact check me and you know if it's easier to fact check their fact check then be sure that they're not going to reshare information that's wrong 
So you're more likely to get a reshare, in my opinion, if you're promoting for an evidence-based page, right? If you're promoting for like booty pics, it might be different. That's just, that's not my niche. <laughs> yes. And possibly for more clinicians, it'd be helpful to go down this, this way. So having the our connections, our communities beforehand and maintaining that through engagement with people who, who comment. I mean, that's also a call to those who follow you to engage more because the more that the onlookers and the observers, they're not just lurking, but they're actually having an active approach and, and asking questions or engaging more, the, the better for you, for your feedback to put out even more useful content and also the more relevant comp content they receive on their end. So we're very much an active part in our social media use. We can have some choices there. Yep. Awesome. Mate, is there anything I, I missed in terms of misinformation respecting your battery life at the moment? That was uh, uh, no, I just think with the new algorithm, saves are the one that gives you the most traction. I'm pretty sure. They can go mm. to sh uh, saves, shares, comments, and then likes. There you go. So if you want to help a meet out, save it. Save it. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Save, then share, then comment, I then like. So. Yeah, I'd have, I'd have to double check. Yes. I, I don't have an RCT on this, but that's what <laughs> I read. Yeah, it might change uh, and, next week. But yeah, and then posting regularly is good too. Yes, so like posting at least once a day is optimal, uh, yeah. unless you're a really, really big account over like a million or a hundred thousand. Mm. Mm. Yes, and um, and making the use of your community as well. So if if you get a big page to share your work, that's your job's done yeah yeah so that's that's what you want yeah Amazing. so tag the big pages that you want to that you aspire to be like mm. fantastic cool that's going to change everyone's spiel at the end instead of like comment share it'll be flipped the other way around love that mate alexis thank you so much for your time over your break as well highly respect that Pleasure. for those who want to find out more about your work and i'm super keen to hear more about your course in your education the pragmatic rehab principles where can we find you tell us more i'm on no bullshit physio on every major platform but i'm mostly on instagram and twitter um i do have an educational project with jacob deplar and uh, elliot sierra uh, a chiro in the u.s uh called pragmatic rehab principles as you mentioned uh, and basically we want to have live courses and then online courses there uh right now we're just posting content and drumming up interest uh, but we want to launch that pretty soon uh, and then on my own page, I'm probably going to have a course on how to consume uh, evidence, like being evidence-based as a practitioner, meaning a chiro, a physio, even like a doctor, if you're not very familiar, or a coach. Um, so it'd be very simple and very like bare bones, like this is what I do and this is how I think people should do it in like a, an efficient manner. Because I mean, there's a way you learn in school that's not practicable where you read the whole article top down. For me, it'd be like, hey, let's make it efficient like a streetwise a science reader course. Um, so yeah, I don't know when that'll come out, but the pragmatic rehab courses should be out um, very soon. So I'll try to get that off the ground soon. Amazing. I'm keeping my eye out. Definitely following. Mate, loving your work, as I mentioned, if I haven't mentioned enough, it's, uh, it's Thank you. incredible to see. We need more people like you and the kind of principles that you teach and you role model. I feel like it's uh, very scary to do what you do. People don't want to kind of call people out. It's, uh, it's like something that, they'll all avoid, but you're just fearless. So Alexis, thank you so much for your time and looking forward to the next one.